Hello, queers. You're listening to Movies Ala Queer. This is Sarita Ramirez. And hi, welcome back. Happy March. <laughs> I took a little break to breathe and get my mind together a bit. As some of you may know, this quarantine, this COVID-19 pandemic has given me a lot of changes in my life, which include, but are not limited to, moving to another state, being laid off from work, and being separated from my girlfriend due to a border closure for now a bit over a year. Long distance is hard. (laughs) And a way for my girlfriend and I to keep our relationship alive is to schedule these fun little date nights where we can watch a film or TV show over some sushi. And this past date night, we finally saw a film that Blended Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them with The Crown. Just kidding. (laughs) This film has been stirring in our minds for a couple months now, ever since we saw the trailer. This film, we explore the revival of emotions that have been buried down deep within our grief. We experience love, excitement, adventure in what is perhaps the first time. In this episode, the film we're analyzing is 2020's The World to Come. a 2020 American drama directed by Mona Fastvold, based on the novel The World to Come by Jim Shepard, screenplay by Jim Shepard and Ron Hansen, starring Katherine Waterston, Vanessa Kirby, Casey Affleck, and Christopher Abbott. Here's the IMDb synopsis. Somewhere along the mid-19th century American East Coast frontier, two neighboring couples battle hardship and isolation witnessed by a splendid yet testing landscape, challenging them both physically and psychologically. Here's the trailer. Tuesday, January 1st, 1856. With little pride and less hope, we begin the new year. Who is that? Good afternoon. I'm Tally. Abigail. I hope I'm not keeping you from something. I'm glad you've come. Meeting you has made my day. Well, how pleasant and uncommon it is to make someone's day. I guess I'm supposed to offer a toast. What my husband means is he's so happy to finally get together. Do you miss me? Yes. Our farm is a slaughterhouse right now. My husband is killing his hawks. And I resolved to visit you so that there would be something in my day other than his meanness. So what do you think? What do you think about us? I don't know how to put it into words. It's been my experience that it's not always those who show the least who actually feel the least. 
07, an earthquake knocked down our house in barn. An earthquake. The dread never fully went away. What was safe if the solid earth could do that? I have certain expectations and you have certain duties. We shall sing like birds in a cage. We haven't seen you for days. Have you been ill? What is happening? Are you in danger? I would die without you. Do you know what memory it is that I most cherish? It's if you're turning to me with that smile once you realized that you were loved. For this film, I'll be giving you a thorough recap. There will be deep spoilers ahead, so if you haven't seen The World to Come yet, I advise you to pause this episode, go watch it, and then come back. But if you're like me, who get excited at spoilers, then listen on. I will not judge you. The film opens up in January 1st of 1856. We meet Abigail, played by Katherine Waterston, who's living in what looks to be what is now upstate New York. She and her husband Dyer own a farm that is very much isolated. Apart from their literal isolation in their town, you also see the couple struggling. Abigail and Dyer don't really have deep conversations. Most of their time is spent in silence. Dyer goes out, deals with their herd and livestock in their farm, while Abigail milks the cows and maintains their home. To ease her mind and her grief, Catherine writes in her journal daily. We learned that the year before, Abigail and Dyer lost their four-year-old daughter, Nellie, to diphtheria, a disease commonly known during that time, but has now been mostly purged due to infant vaccinations. Since Nellie's death, Abigail and Dyer have been strangers to one another, getting on with their days, each maintaining their daily duties, but very much emotionally disconnected. Not long after the new year, a new couple move into a nearby farm. Dyer tells Abigail their names are Finney and Tally, who come to rent that farm temporarily. Soon after, Tally visits Abigail, introducing herself. Abigail appears very nervous, but looks pleased to meet Tally. One can imagine that Abigail has probably not met someone new in a very long time, considering the location of their farm and, as I mentioned before, their isolation. Tally apologizes for the intrusion and says that she needed to get away from their home. Abigail invites her inside and the two sit and enjoy a pot of tea. And as they get to know each other, we hear Abigail's retelling in her journal how she began to notice Tally's beauty right away, a beauty that made her look away and blush as it stirred something in her. Ooh. <laughs> the two begin talking about Tally's somewhat unhappy marriage with her husband, Finney, who claims that his wife is not the kindest that she could be to him. Tally retorts that if Finney were married to himself, he'd realize that she was doing him a favor and being this unkind. With this, we get a hint of Tally's sense of humor. She's sharp, witty, and conjures a smile from Abigail. Perhaps 
the first smile in a long time. Tally notes how her husband is unhappy with her because she hasn't given him any children yet, and then notes that both she and Abigail are childless, much to society's disdain of women in that era. Abigail tells Tally that her daughter died due to diphtheria the year before. Just then, Dyer returns and Tally leaves back home. Abigail and Tally spend a lot of time together after that, with Tally coming by her house often, <laughs> to say the least. Tally returns the favor by inviting Abigail and Dyer to their home for dinner, and the four, including Tally's husband, Finney, converse over matters like the farm and the town gossip. Here, we see Abigail wearing this beautiful red wine-colored dress, and she's smiling, happy to be in Tally's company again. Tally notices this happy Abigail, telling Abigail that she looks different today, to which Abigail laughs and says, no, no, not at all. While the four are sitting down post-dinner, there is a bit of tension between Tally and Finney. We see Finney for the first time, and he's a bit of a serious man and somewhat chatty. He mentions how Tally always talks about Abigail as though she were the whole house, which pleases Abigail, but leaves us, the viewers, with a sense of concern because we knew, or at least we got a taste, that it wasn't meant to be a compliment. Not long after their evening at Tally and Finney's, it's Abigail's birthday, and Tally brings over a few gifts to which Abigail is excited to see. Then Tally complains about her feet getting cold, to which Abigail offers to rub them in front of her fire. This moment is probably the first real physical intimacy that the two share. Tally draws her foot back, but Abigail doesn't seem bothered. Asking Tally how Finney is doing, Tally responds that he's the same old Finney. And on that day, she wanted nothing more than to leave the house and visit Abigail to escape Finney's meanness. Again, letting us know that her relationship with Finney is very sour and unhappy. Tally leaves, and soon after, Dyer returns back home. Abigail lies to Dyer, saying that Tally left hours ago, but Dyer says that he saw Tally leave a few minutes ago. He doesn't reproach her, however, or even ask her why she lied to him, but he drops it. The two later make love that evening, Dyer telling Abigail that he would die without her, to which Abigail responds that he should not worry. Tally, who had a difficult time getting back home after Abigail's birthday due to this dangerous snowstorm that happened out of nowhere, honestly, <laughs> became ill and was taken by Finney to a nearby town to heal. A few months go by before Abigail and Tally see one another again. And once they do, they spend most of their free time together. I'm talking about days, <laughs> enjoying one another's company. One day, Tally arrives and tells Abigail that she has a cold. Abigail starts to prepare some tea when Ali begins to confess her feelings for Abigail, telling her that she doesn't ever want to be away from her. Abigail eventually reciprocates the feelings, telling Tally that she loves the way that they're able to feel so much together and that nothing escapes those feelings. They then share a deep kiss, with Tally eventually leaving. The following day, Dyer catches Abigail smiling at the arrival of Tally. He hints at these expressions of happiness that he himself doesn't receive from her. She ignores this, opens the door to welcome Tally inside. Dyer then leaves, leaving Tally and Abigail alone for the first time after their first deep kiss from the other day. The two, Tally and Abigail, make love that day. 
Back at Tally's house, we get the feeling that the situation with Finney is just getting worse. He insults her, berates her, and is demanding that she submit to him and to her wifely duties. Another way of saying for her to have sex with him and to succumb to what the Bible, at least in that time anyway, demanded of women in heterosexual relationships. Days go by where Abigail doesn't hear from Tally until she and Finney stroll by on their carriage towards Abigail and Dyer's farm. Tally, looking a bit distraught but contained, invites them to their home for dinner. Abigail asks Tally, you know, where, where have you been? To which Finney interrupts and says that Tally has been unwell. Tally is also fashioning this bruise on the side of her face, which Abigail notices. The next day, Abigail goes out to buy a new dress for the dinner at Tally and Finney's, when at the same time, she witnesses a neighbor's house burned down. It is then confirmed that that neighbor's daughter got trapped in the house and died due to the fire. Abigail, distraught at the scene, is visibly shaken. That same evening, Abigail and Dyer visit Tally and Finney's for dinner. And there is just a lot of anger and tension that can just be cut with a butter knife. Finney, showing off his disdain for Tally and the farm that they've rented, begins to tell a story about how he once owned a dog that used to bark all the time that just very much annoyed him. And to stop this dog that he owned from barking, he came up with a plan to tie up the dog outside of his barn during a snowstorm until it froze to death. Tally, who was sitting next to him, Her expression was unfazed, as though these stories and these underlying threats that Finney would make are done often. Abigail and Dyer, on the other hand, are shocked. Abigail says that that was just outright despicable. Dyer, wanting to change the subject and keep a calm atmosphere, begins to talk about the farming again. It doesn't work because it looks as though Finney's mood has just gotten worse. Abigail and Dyer leave and return home. Now, days and weeks go by and Abigail does not hear from Tally again. She decides to head on over to Tally and Finney's and sees that they've moved out without any word. She finds a towel soaked with blood in the house and begins to worry. Is this Tally's? She's probably asking herself. Abigail asks her neighbors about the couple's move and no one knows a thing. She begs her husband to go talk to the sheriff, to which he says that there's no proof or point in causing a stir. Abigail goes anyway, and like Dyer said, nobody does anything. So more weeks go by, and Abigail receives a letter from Tally, who tells her that she and Finney have moved to a town 80 or so miles away. She tells Tally, in better words than what I can sum up, that she loves her and that at the end of the day, they can at least recall the memories that they once shared when they both knew that they shared love for one another. And again, they can just recall those memories. Abigail writes back to Tally. And we know Tally receives this letter because we see how Finney opens it and reads it out loud to her. And although Abigail did not use the concrete words to express her love for Tally, it was well written in innuendo and clear to Finney, who hands Tally the letter once he's done reading it, that there's definitely more going on between Tally and Abigail. Abigail, not having heard from Tally again after the last letter she sent her, begs Dyer and her to drive on over to the town where the couple now stay. Once they arrive, they find Finney outside of the home, looking somewhat distraught in silence. 
Abigail asks him where Tally is, and Finney tells her that, well, Tally has died, probably due to diphtheria. Now, diphtheria, if you remember, was the same illness that caused the death of Abigail and Dyer's daughter, Nellie, a year before that. Abigail runs inside the house and sees Tally lying on her bed, passed on. Abigail lays down next to her, holding her hand, her cold hand, and begins to think about the memories that they shared that summer. Eventually, she's wakened by Dyer, who gently urges for them to leave. Finney standing in the doorway in silence. We now fast forward to see Abigail write in her journal how her grief has returned. She and Dyer are back to that same routine, them completing their responsibilities in silence. Abigail writes in her journal her desire and her wishes to one day join Dyer on a trip to where she'll be able to confront Finney and kill him with one of Dyer's shotguns. Abigail suspects that Finney killed Tally from an earlier conversation the two had where Tally admits that Finney had indirectly threatened to poison her. In the last scene of the film, we see Abigail and Dyer sitting on the roof of their barn. Abigail imagines the presence of her daughter Nellie out in the field. And while speaking with Dyer, she imagines that she's speaking instead to Tally, who says to Abigail that they will always have their imaginations to manage their reality. And the film ends with Abigail and what she imagines to be Tally stroking her hair in silence. This film was not completely hard to watch, (laughs) but I wish it was easier. It's not for those expecting a happy ending, that's for sure. And although I was hoping that it wouldn't end in such a dark, sad, depressing note, I had to keep in mind the time period that this film took place. This was in the mid-19th century America, where the roles women led were very much limited in terms of property and freedom. We meet Abigail and Dyer, a grieving couple who just lost their daughter to an illness that none could control and cure in those times. They are also farmers who live modestly and work very hard to survive every day. But then Abigail meets Tally, who becomes that light at the end of the tunnel for Abigail. Tally was someone that she was drawn to, and although we mostly get Abigail's side of things in this film, we also learn that Tally was in a really horrible marriage situation herself. She was in an unhappy marriage with a man who would constantly yell Bible verses to her, using that to threaten her about submitting her body to him like he were God. In an interview with Steve Weintraub for Collider, Catherine Waterston and Vanessa Kirby recount their experiences with the film and how much they really enjoyed the story and the filmmaking. Vanessa Kirby, who plays Tally, says, and I quote, I felt very in tune with Tally. I just imagined her to be the kind of personality that might always wonder what's beyond and There must have been so many women throughout history who have questioned the order and the system and imagined a world that didn't have that. I think she really represents that, unquote. Catherine Waterston, who plays Abigail, says, and I quote, It's so moving and tragic to me how these two women, who in their very different ways 
are just longing to reach out beyond the limitations of their three-square-mile existence, unquote. While watching the film, I noticed that it appeared a bit grainy to me. My girlfriend, during our first viewing, paused the film and asked me if she was seeing what I was seeing, or if her screen was somehow fucked up or something, (laughs) because it was just a little bit grainy. She thought that there was maybe some type of filter on the film or something that made it look a bit darker than other films that we've seen recently. Come to find out through my research that the movie was filmed on celluloid, which explains the natural grainy look on the screen. Catherine Waterston called The World to Come a film for the cinema due to the natural lighting and classic old school filming techniques. If you want to read the full article and watch the full interview with Catherine Waterston and Vanessa Kirby, I will link the site. (laughs) I will link the page in the show notes. So let's talk about that ending. We get hints at Tally's death pretty early on in the film. We watch how Finney kills his hogs in such brutality that it makes Tally want to leave and for the first time visit Abigail. We then later get that same feeling when Finney tells Tally that he hasn't told her the rumors of the husbands who are poisoning their wives because they're unhappy. Tally then tells this to Abigail the next day, but they both seem to just brush it off as though it wasn't a legitimate threat. When Abigail walks home after purchasing that blue dress to wear for Tally and Finney's house, She walks upon that house burning and a child dying as a result. While this may not be directly related to Tally, it's still very ominous because we know that in the beginning of the film, we learned that Abigail's own daughter had passed away. This shows that happiness, a life, a family could be ripped from your hands without warning. This could also be foreshadowing Tally and Finney's abrupt move and Tally's eventual death. So speaking about Tally's death, let's talk about that trope that we all love to hate, the bury your gaze trope. For those that don't know, the bury your gaze trope is defined by Deborah and Susanna at The Take as, and I quote, the longstanding convention of narratives killing off their queer characters far more frequently than straight characters, unquote. In their analysis between 2015 and 2016, 42 lesbian and bisexual women characters were killed off in American television shows alone. And if that wasn't creepy and infuriating enough, apparently four of them died in a single month of episodes. Like, what the fuck? (laughs) Again, I'll be posting their video in the show notes and I wholeheartedly recommend everyone to watch it to find out more information about the bury your gaze trope. So I would like to talk about the bury your gaze trope further in detail with more research. But one line that I took away from the takes analysis was a debate of should film and TV shows not kill their queer characters altogether, especially with the purpose to further along the plot of a non-queer character in their prospective show or film. And what the analysis further points out is that It's probably not the best idea to limit the stories of LGBTQ characters by not killing them at all, but to make their lives 
just more meaningful and worthwhile on the screen and to actually tell their stories in a way that's fulfilled. It's okay to point out the sadness and misery of these characters because for many, till this day in 2021, that is still a reality. But it's also important to showcase those stories that are not just about their queerness and their subsequent deaths because of it. In the world to come, we experience Tally's death and are left with, uh, what the fuck was that? I felt so empty afterwards and full of dread in all the ways that I feared this film would end. And like I mentioned earlier in this episode, I assumed that their stories may not end in a happy way, as many period films do. The first that comes to mind is Portrait of a Lady on Fire, where the two main characters just don't end up together, but at least they don't die. (laughs) Unfortunately, we didn't learn more about Tally other than her desire to reach beyond her experience. We get more of an understanding when she's speaking to Abigail about her wishes to come home to people applauding her and loving her. And I wish that they focused more on her as a person and not her death, which was a result from her shitty abusive husband's murder. Apart from Tally's death, I did enjoy the film. I, I think it's beautiful. I, The grainy look was a bit distracting at first, but then I got used to it and I didn't care. I did enjoy the quiet nature and the scenery, and I did love that the film had a lot of conversation. I think after watching Portrait of a Lady on Fire and Ammonite, having conversation and dialogue was refreshing. <laughs> And as a fellow chatty person, I appreciated Tally's spirited nature. So yes, I did enjoy the film more the second time than the first time watching it. But that was also knowing what was going to happen at the end. Vanessa Kirby and Catherine Waterston had great chemistry and their love in making the film did show through the screen. Again, I do recommend this film, but just for those that don't mind the dying part (laughs) and enjoy sad and brooding period films. To watch The World to Come, it is available to rent and own on Vudu, Amazon Prime, Google Play, and YouTube. I thank you all again for listening to Movies All Queer. Don't forget, if you haven't done so already, follow on Instagram and TikTok for those latest news updates and to see my mini reviews. Please also leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to Movies All Queer. This would make Movies All Queer easier to find for those curious ears. This is Sarita Ramirez. Stay safe, warm, and I will see you next week with another episode. Bye. (music) 